Women are my windmills. I tilted them. I'm like a, a knight, a knight of old, wandering the land. Don Quixote. Yeah? Uh, in a manner of speaking. A British Don Quixote. Oh, Adam. Oh, what's happened, Ash? You've got, you got that look on your face. Well, we've had um, a bit of a calamity here. Um, it's been a bit quiet on the podcast front. Oh, we're finally stopping doing it, aren't we? Almost that bad. We've stopped doing one. <laughs> one, one has stopped doing itself, as when far I as I can tell. When I text you saying the podcast is cancelled, you may be celebrated a bit quickly. <laughs> I just meant one podcast is cancelled. Which one? Well, you know that lovely Christmas Carol episode we did? The one we poured our hearts and souls into. Yeah. Yeah. And poured quite a lot of um, Prosecco into as well, because yeah. it also happened to be the occasion of our 50th episode. And what happened to it? Um, it got um, mangled somehow. <laughs> An audio gremlin mangled it. Are you telling me your dog ate the podcast? I think my pod dog ate the podcast. <laughs> it, it must have got into the wiring somehow. But um, I listened back to it and it's... So is it balked? I don't remember us recording it through a washing machine, but apparently that's <laughs> what we did. We've, stopped, we've never used microphones. We always just used the um, whatever onboard recording equipment was on our washing machine. Yeah. You do get quite scuba after a glass of Prosecco or two. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. I'm, I'm going to blame yeah. you. Okay. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, our planned and um, very uh, warm uh, recording of our 50th episode, Christmas Carol, didn't work. Um, so we're going to reschedule. Our f- I didn't want it just to end up being a James Paz. <laughs> 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 so it's um, going to be um, today's episode, or, or at least the first part of uh, today's book, which is... Don Quixote, we actually recorded it ages ago, and we've since um, moved to record in a new location. So We're, under, we're uh, literally underground. Yeah, if you feel your head being sort of jerked around um, geographically, and you, you start getting a headache, like some people get a headache during storms, it's because you're being um, swept from one postcode to just the outer edge of the same postcode. <laughs> um, it's been a huge, huge move for us. Yeah, well, we are, we are now literally... The underground of podcasts. Yeah, we are actually recording underground now, which is cool. Um, yeah. Well, let us, if you have any feedback on how the how it sounds, if you can hear, a, potentially you might be able to hear some sort of freezer. Yeah, we're, we're We're recording this in an industrial meat freezer. <laughs> Into a walk-in fridge. Um, I can't really remember um, how our recording of Don Quixote went, but uh, here it is. Here it is. And um, we will be back with our 51st and, and so on. And, um, and don't think for a moment that we are going to let Christmas Carol lie. I did think about trying to put out bits of it, uh, but any of the usual tricks of audio rescue only made it sound worse. It was sort sure. of like doing CPR to someone who'd like fallen off a skyscraper. <laughs> it's just making more of a mess. But you felt like you were doing something. Yeah, well, I felt like I was just... It was quite satisfying just to make it sound as ho- horrible as possible. <laughs> <laughs> really destroy it. Um, but unfortunately... We've lost that. We've lost us chinking glasses and... Um, can you say chinking? Clinking glasses. Clinking glasses. Um, and all of that nice stuff, unfortunately. But next Christmas, <laughs> next we'll, we'll try again. We'll, we'll for, the, for the third year in a row, yeah, we'll do we'll some sort of do. Christmas carol-related yeah. endeavour. Okay, well, anyway, here's Don Quixote. Enjoy. Bye. On the 16th of January, 1605... A Spanish novel called El Ingenioso Hidalgo Don Quixote de la Mancha was published and was an immediate success. Most of the 400 copies printed in its first edition were sent across the Atlantic, its publisher hopeful for some new world money. 
Unfortunately, the vast majority of these precious copies were lost at sea when its ship was wrecked off the coast of Cuba. Less than a hundred Don Quixote survived in the Western Hemisphere, but undeterred by their trials, they were last seen sallying on from Lima towards the ruins of the Incan Empire. Back home, Don Quixote was popular enough to command reprintings and further editions. Whilst the novel's author was being shafted out of his royalties by his publisher, pirate editions were circulated, the names of Don Quixote, Sancho Panza and Miguel de Cervantes becoming famous across the continent. It took seven years for a translation to appear in England, an edition which playwrights John Fletcher and William Shakespeare read and pillaged for play material. So the novel might not have immediately transformed the life of its author, but it would make a lasting impression on the history of literature and philosophy for centuries to come. Dr Johnson described it as one of the only books he desired to be even longer than it already was. Coleridge called it a novel you read through once or twice only, but which you read in repeatedly. Literary fisticuffs broke out and continue over whether or not Don Quixote is the first modern novel, many critics feeling that indeed it is, and that no one since has topped it. Lionel Trilling, for instance, said all prose fiction is a variation on the theme of Don Quixote. Depending on who you ask, the Romantics either immortalised or ruined Don Quixote. They were drawn to his doomed idealism and imagination, and saw him as less of a buffoon than a sincerely heroic knight. In the illustrations of an 1847 edition, Stephen Alonzo Schoff engraves the knight of the sorrowful face as an exemplary specimen of chivalry, handsomely armoured and refined. Nothing at all like the depictions done by Cruikshank, the illustrator of Dickens we met in our episodes on the Pickwick Papers, whose grotesque caricaturist style is on full show in his drawings of a dithering reed-like Don and a gorging pig-like Sancho Panza. The romantic response to Don Quixote was sympathy. William Wordsworth, in Book 5 of his Prelude, reads the recorded history of the Mad Knight and finds, in the blind and awful lair of such a madness, reason did lie couched. Alexander Pope concurred. Don Quixote, said, was the most moral and reasoning madman in the world. Many are drawn to the comedy of the knight errant, and you have limitless potential for it with a main character who bases everything he sees on error. And on top of that, you have masses of toilet humour in the book, which occasionally approaches gross-out excesses. There is Sancho Panza erupting at both ends, and only a chapter later having the venerable knight vomit in his face. Yet following World War II, Andre Molro said, Only three books are truly meaningful to the survivors of prisons and concentration camps, The Idiot, Robinson Crusoe, and Don Quixote. As for the author himself, he was modestly hopeful that his work might contain multitudes. As he said in his prologue, Idle reader, without my swearing to it, you can believe I would like this book, the child of my understanding, to be the most beautiful, the most brilliant, and the most discreet that anyone could imagine. I've never had to ask you this before but how do you actually pronounce the book we're talking about uh don quixote don uh, it is don quixote in according to many english scholars the I, 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 gang yeah. I, I know don it's don not key i think quixote mm. is an over pronunciation don quixote yeah so i've no. always said that though so have i i don't know what cultural touchstone we've both latched onto in our in, in our language that's pronounced as don quixote because i read that the x in um, Castilian mm-hmm. was a sh sound. Interesting. So Don, Don Quixote. Don Quixote, yeah. Um, and then eventually it sort of, the Spanish adopted it as Quixote with an H and now a J. Well, I think that the book itself is credited with establishing much of the modern Spanish anyway. Mm. It's one of those power books. Mm. Like, 
Have you heard? Of, you've heard about Kishot? Or did we talk about this last time? I don't think other. we 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 talked about it briefly. But I don't think we French, actually got into it. French pronounce it Kishot with um, mm. the ch. But I, I don't understand that. I think it's the logic behind English people saying Don Quixote because we say Quixotic. I th- I don't think it's that deep. I think okay. it's literally just people pronouncing what, what is in front say. of them. Yeah. And in English, the X is just a. K. a k- yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's it's a break. Yeah. Sorry, my notes that the kind of Spanish that Cervantes was writing in was less common than the Spanish that was around then. Oh, and really? much of the modern Spanish is credited to his spread of that dialect through the book. Jorge Luis Borges says, I first read Don Quixote in English. When I reread it in Spanish, it seemed to me a poor translation. Given that it seems unlikely that in some odd way Don Quixote works better in English than Spanish, we can assume that the version Borges read in Spanish was simply worse. Cervantes' words, to paraphrase Dryden, in less accord with that particular translator's genius. Read any two translations of Don Quixote and you will have the same experience as Borges. I feel lucky to have first read Edith Grossman's translation of 2003 and have her sentences and characterizations shape my own personal definitive Don. Since then, I've flicked through others such as Samuel Putman and Burton Raffle, read sections of Tobias Smollett and J.M. Cohen quoted in books of crit- criticism, but nothing feels quite as right as Edith Grossman's version. In other translations, the scenery creaks, the actors tire. Reading Grossman's, I can understand the ecstatic reaction of Dr. Johnson saying, if only it was longer, which is quite a statement given that the novel frequently weighs in at over a thousand pages. It's hard to pinpoint what is so successful about Edith Grossman's translation as a monolingual non-academic, but what stands out in comparison to the others that I've come across is that somehow her version seems to overlook nothing and yet never feel scholarly which, given the tonnage of scholarship that goes into an endeavour like translating Don Quixote, is saying quite a lot. Perhaps part of it is to do with her separating the bits that are supposed to feel old from the rest of this very old novel. As she says in her translator's note, When Cervantes wrote Don Quixote, his language was not archaic or quaint. He wrote in crackling, up-to-date Spanish that was an intrinsic part of his time. This is instantly apparent when he has Don Quixote in transports of knightly madness speak in the old-fashioned idiom of the novels of chivalry. Whose translation did you read, incidentally? Uh, I think the copy I had was the original one, the Irish guy. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a way, I, I was reading my dad's copy, which first, is a big academical style. The first English one, uh-huh. uh, we, we, we're, we're dangerously close to veering into just talking about <laughs> Shakespeare, was, I think, published in 1612. Interesting. So just about time yeah. for Shakespeare. To, Shakespeare time. Shakespeare to have read it, although he could have read it in, in Spanish or in a previous translation. Well, this is all based on the assumption that Shakespeare could read. (laughs) Let's not open that can of worms. (laughs) The first English translation by John Shelton appeared in 1612. This was the version that Shakespeare and John Fletcher read before collaborating on a play, Now Lost. However nice it is to imagine Shakespeare having created a famous fat knight in Falstaff early in his career, bringing to life late in his career Cervantes' thin knight, it seems that Don Quixote does not in fact make an appearance. The play, called Cardenio, or Double Falsehood, takes for its inspiration one of Cervantes' interpolated stories. In part one, the Don and Sancho meet a madman raging in the mountains. When they confront him, he tells them the sad tale of his love, Lucinda, stolen from him by the wealthy Don Fernando. This is one of the standalone novellas towards the end of Don Quixote's first part, including one called The Captive's Tale, which bears a great resemblance to Cervantes' own experience as the prisoner of pirates. 
Whilst they hold autobiographical interest, if we are to judge by their absence in part two, the inset stories were criticised at the time and suspected by Vladimir Nabokov to be the padding of a tired author. I hadn't realised how episodic it was before I started reading it. Yeah. This is the, this is the day that they do this thing. This is the day they free some slaves. Uh, yeah. You know. And not only that, but this is the day they bump into a slave who just yeah. tells them his whole life story and it goes on for well, a you know, you know, shockingly long well, you know, time. Do you know why that's so long? It's him. Yeah, Cervantes yeah. was a, an, a slave in Algiers. Yeah, well, he was. Um, he signed. He, he joined the Spanish army yeah. and fought at the Battle of Lepanto, and then pressed into a kind of forced servitude. Yeah. So he first he um, at that actual battle he he fought bravely, uh, received at least two wounds, mm-hmm. and had his left hand paralysed. I just gestured with my right. Um, <laughs> uh, and then later he was he was captured by Turkish pirates and then enslaved for about five years. Yeah, and then he was in jail for a while as well. Yeah, t- uh, more than once, I think. Yeah. I, his, his father was the same, Rodrigo. He, they'd moved around a lot as a, as a, um, when he was young. And so he, he saw quite a lot of Spain. Miguel de Cervantes was born in 1547 in Alcala de Henares, a university town near Madrid. Later, he acquired the additional surname Saavedra, His father was a barber surgeon, frequently in debt during Miguel's early life. The family had to move around a lot. Rodrigo de Cervantes was sued and jailed, and young Miguel's education frequently interrupted. He spent six years in Italy and fought at the Battle of Lepanto, in which he lost the use of his left hand. Later he was captured by the Turks and spent years in captivity, before finally being ransomed back to Spain in 1580. Here, he realised there would be no reward for his service and suffering, and no chance of a further military career with the use of only one hand. Four years later, he married, and the following year he published La Galatea, a pastoral novel. During this time, he continued to work on plays, as a successful career as a dramatist could be very lucrative. However, his efforts failed to attract an income, and were always unfavourably compared with the plays of Lope de Vega. He found work as a commissary in Andalusia and applied for posts to the West Indies until, like his father before him, he was arrested for debts in 1592. He was jailed in 1599 and again arrested in 1605. Traditionally, it is thought, he began writing Don Quixote in prison. According to Manuel Duran, he became a writer almost out of desperation. What else could he do? How could he earn a living? He began to write out of love of literature, but also probably out of desperation, hoping to find in his literary career a source of income. Perhaps here we see how Cervantes arrived at burlesquing a format as a viable way forward. Writing a famous and traditional type of tale about a questing knight would have market appeal, but in order to keep himself interested, he subverted its usual characteristics and wound up creating a character who rode straight out of tales of chivalry and into modern fiction. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Nabokov said loads of times, like, like he's the coolest kid at school and I've just run around the corner, um, but he, he called it a scarecrow masterpiece saying that it, it was pegged on. Well, I think that's, that's fair. I think there are the bones of greatness. The, the, I think one of the most interesting things he said is he reckoned that um, it started out as a long, short story. He said that the first Sally of Don mm-hmm. Quixote reads, it has a moral, it's neat, it's, um, it's kind of on track. It's got a beginning, middle and end. And then he just kept writing and it. And then he thinks he got carried away and like, it was too good an idea. But would it... So do you think it would actually... If, if you were to read it as a series of short stories with the same characters in them, as opposed to a novel? I think after that, it's not a series of short stories. That, you probably could put it down then and yeah. go, like, I understood everything. But you'd, you'd miss out on Sancho Panza. 
Somewhere in La Mancha, in a place whose name I do not care to remember, a gentleman lived not long ago, one of those who has a lance and an ancient shield on the shelf and keeps a skinny nag and a greyhound for racing. The novel begins with Don Quixote's birth. A respectable Hidalgo of around 50 loses his mind reading books of chivalry, tales like those of Amadis the Gaul and Percival, tales of knights errant, the idealistic warriors who wander the earth in search of victories to perform invariably in the name of some beloved lady. Our Hidalgo's former name was Alonso Quiano, but he now rechristens himself in the chivalrous mode as Don Quixote, the word Quixote being a piece of armour protecting the thigh. He sets about equipping himself with the trappings of knight errantry, cobbling together armour and securing an old nag for a steed, who also gets a chivalrous revamp with the name Rocinante, a multivalent pun, Rocin meaning a dud horse and ante meaning before or previously. To Quixote, the name is an elevation of status. No longer an old nag, Rocinante is now the foremost steed. Most importantly of all, he selects more or less at random a neighbouring farm girl as his sweet lady, for whom he will dedicate his victories and in whose honour compose mournful poetry. She gets the name Dulcinea del Toboso and remains for the entire novel utterly unaware of her involvement. Quixote doesn't let practicalities get in the way of a good quest, as we discover after he finishes fashioning himself a helmet and checks its strength with his sword. In order to test if it was strong and could withstand a blow, he undid in a moment what had taken him a week to create. He could not help being disappointed at the ease with which he had hacked it to pieces. After making another and learning his lesson, he doesn't test it. Appearances for Don Quixote are of utmost importance. Even before he has started doing any errant business, he anticipates his own chronicler, happily imagining the time when the true history of his deeds will come to light. For his first sally, Don Quixote comes across what he believes to be a castle, ideal for the final officiating of his knightliness, for he requires a lord, as this castle doubtlessly has, to dub him as a knight, while Quixote himself holds a long vigil, gazing over his armour. Small realities threaten to become obstacles. The castle, for starters, is in fact an inn, the lord merely an innkeeper. But to Don Quixote, such obstacles are trivial. And here we see the full force and robustness of his projected reality. The innkeeper was initially bemused by his strange guest, but after the mad knight begins to wreak havoc, bows to Quixote's vision of life and performs a pretend ceremony in order to get rid of him. The Don, embattled already but satisfied, heads on his way, causing more trouble and eventually being severely beaten and left on the side of the road. Providence will escort him back to his home in La Mancha to recover his strength in time for a second sally. During one moment of this first one, we witnessed the extent to which Don Quixote will simulate behaviour. Because for the majority of the novel, Quixote has an audience. Whether it is Sancho Panza or the innkeeper or various travelling characters, he strikes dumb on the road. But here he has no one. After leaving the inn and upon reaching a crossroads, not knowing where to turn, he recalls the hours knights errant would spend considering and reasoning the way. Rather than actively pondering, in order to imitate them, he remained motionless for a time, and after having thought very carefully, he loosened the reins and subjected his will to Rocinante. We have here a feeling that will recur throughout the novel, that Don Quixote is attempting to write himself, and like many writers, he's going to discover that it's much more easily done with a collaborator to bounce ideas off. At this point, the knight still lacks a squire. So once again, we've this one was more planned. Once again, we've ended up on our universal theme of adventuring male friendships. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we had to do this one to because it was the one. We've been saying words like picaresque and yeah. Um, this is the predefining version of this relationship. Mm. 
in literature. The idea, it goes all the way back to like clever slave, stupid master. Yep. But this is the first example of it in a real modern sense of two people of differing social classes go on a wild adventure together. Yeah. Sancho is a farm, a farmer yeah. who um, Don Quixote employs as his squire. Nabokov called him a sack full of proverbs, <coughs> uh, <laughs> which re- which reminded me of, um, I think this must have come up in our Stephen Jarvis episode, uh-huh. but it, it, I mean, the relationship between, or, sorry, the similarity between um, Pickwick, Don Quixote and, and Sam Weller. Oh, yeah. And uh, Sancho Panza is... So striking. It is, it is literally like you've just swapped the fat and thin around. Yeah. Do you know a man named Don Quixote? Never heard of him. The scarecrow of a man with a lance. Making trouble everywhere. He must be here. I saw his horse outside. And he's always with a fat fool whose name is Sancho Panza. Sancho is described as a poor but good man, lacking in brains. His surname Panza means paunch. Sancho's appetite will be a recurring source of comedy, and his physical contrast with the bony knight, who resembles a graphism in the words of Foucault, has been made the most of by illustrators over the years. In order to convince Sancho to come along, Quixote promises him an insular to govern. As the story progresses, Sancho will appear on occasion to be convinced by the Don's extravagance and confidence, and at other times to use his intimacy with his master's madness to his own advantage. One of the pleasures of the book is guessing at how much or how little Sancho perceives and believes, and to what extent he is along for the ride. To some, Sancho is the heart of the book, a kind of translator himself, at times valiantly trying to fashion or phrase a bridge between the world as Don Quixote sees it and the world as it is. Others, such as Nabokov, are less convinced, calling him a sack full of proverbs and a not particularly likeable or intelligent character. Kafka famously imagined this literary friendship reversed. Don Quixote was merely an imaginative creation of Sancho's. It is the fat man who has gorged himself on books of chivalry and dreamed up the necessary agent to embody them, Don Quixote. While Sancho is traditionally identified as the poor man in bondage and Don Quixote the idealistic old Hidalgo free to roam, in Kafka's reading, Quixote is bound by his quest and duty to chivalry, while Sancho remains a free man. Quixote as as a man, as a character, he's... Hard, hard to pin down mm. because he has his moments. You don't know if he's truly as as witless. Well, he's not witless. witless. He's not quite witless. He he may be mad. One of the big critical questions, I think, and what people argue about the most is uh-huh. like, is he insane? I don't think he's insane. No. Do you think he's insane? No, I don't. I see him as um, willfully eccentric. The madness of Don Quixote does have rules. His chivalry re- requires an object, which he dutifully invents in the form of the Dulcinea del Toboso. Rather than his queen being someone he might have long desired as Alonso Quiano, it is someone he picks at random, showing just how far he has erased Alonso and how totally dominant the persona of Don Quixote has become. When Sancho, who knows the farm girl Quixote selected, discovers it is she who is the object of his master's devotion, He laughs and says, I know her very well, and can say she can throw a metal bar as well as the brawniest lad in the village. Quixote fumes at this, but we sense his anger is straight out of chivalry. How dare Sancho, a mere squire, insult the immortal Dulcinea? The possibility that that as Alonso Quiano he might have questionable tastes is never considered. 
Some critics have suggested the choice of a local farm girl is no accident and that Don Quixote has a repressed sexual desire for his niece. But there seems nothing except the existence of a niece on which to base this. To me, the Don's romantic behaviour seems quite consistent and easy to follow. Throughout the novel, he is often surrounded by beautiful young women. At the conclusion of this first part, there is a veritable pile-up of beautiful females, all described as looking even more beautiful than we can possibly imagine. And yet the Don never ditches his illusory Dulcinea, whom, it should be noted, even within the context of his fantasy, he is unlikely ever to be with. Even with the loophole of enchanters at his disposal, with which he explains away several of Sancho's concerns and reasonings, as simply the result of Sancho being enchanted, the Don never connives a reason to be with a real woman. When he experiences a moment of temptation in part two, it is a self-conscious bit of temptation, because being tempted is a very knightly sort of thing to happen to you, like Lancelot, for example. All this means Don Quixote profits by no ordinary metric through his adventures. He makes no financial profit and has no romantic conquests. The question of why Don Quixote loses his wits has kept critics guessing for years. Miguel de Unamuno says that Quixote lost them for our sake, for our own benefit, so as to leave us with an eternal example of spiritual generosity. After his first sally, Quixote's friends, the barber and the priest, decide the best thing to do is to burn his library. The books, after all, were what drove him mad. In an extended sequence, they rid Quixote's library of all the books of chivalry, saving a few here and there they think to have some worth, including Cervantes' own previous novel, La Galatea. But the majority of those brain-rotting books are thrown onto the fire. Don Quixote is the greatest book of all time. Mm. Is it? Nabokov's absolutely brutal about this. Just says not. It's not even one of the. It's not even. Ringo's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. Yeah, he has. That's his. His opinion is, um, the character of Don Quixote is immortal. The book is a is baggy and ragged and very inconsistent. Well, it, the prose has not aged well. That's interesting. As in the structure, the way it all hangs together, mm. you can tell that this was somebody writing in a style for which there wasn't really a guide. Just out of interest, because I've read two translations now. Okay. I gave up on the first one years ago, and I thought it was just dry and See, crap that's and unfunny. probably the one that I read, because I read up about the translation, because yeah. I was enjoying it so little. I was already so <laughs> far through. And it was one of the earlier translations that was deemed to be too literal. Right. Okay. So I think I may have I may have read Don Quixote, the boring version. For reference, um, or for any listeners who might be persuaded by this not very glowing review we're giving, mine was um, by Edith Grossman. I think it's from about two thousand and three. I'll go find out at some point who translated mine because I think it's from it might be from the nineteenth century. Right. Okay. Hers is really funny. The first time I read it, I just read the whole thing through, just like it was. You know when you open that kind of book and the footnotes are so big that it, it's it's like a really horrible push-up bra. Yeah. Like the the prose is just squeezed to the top and you're, it's just like endless oh. notes. Um, it's not like that at all. But it's, 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 it's like just as much footnotes as you'd like. Okay. And really... For next time I'll look out, I'll look out who translated mine. The two forms of literature most commonly referred to in reference to Don Quixote are the chivalric romance and the picaresque. The consensus you'll hear on Don Quixote and books of chivalry is that they were immensely popular works that got under Cervantes' nose. In retaliation, he wrote, an a, thou- he wrote a thousand-page novel, motivated solely by his desire to destroy the genre. After all, in his epilogue to part two, he declares, 
My only desire has been for people to reject and despise the false and nonsensical histories of the books of chivalry, which are already stumbling over the history of my true Don Quixote. He was successful, according to consensus, and his burlesquing of the form, in the famous words of Lord Byron, smiled Spain's chivalry away. Books of chivalry had been around a long time when Cervantes turned on them. The French led the way in versified romances of chivalry from the 12th century onwards, in works such as William of Palerme and the Vulgate Grail Cycle. In Spain, according to Ramon Menendez Pidal, this medieval romance had a very late revival. The romance of chivalry, which during the Middle Ages had scarcely produced any original works in Spain, and which in France was completely forgotten, enjoyed in the plenitude of the Renaissance a profuse flowering which spread from the peninsula throughout Europe. He goes on to say, The last highly successful romance of chivalry, the one that survived the longest, was Diego Ortunes de Calahorra's El Caballero de Fibo in 1562, whose adventures furnished plots to the courtly theatre of Queen Elizabeth. In Don Quixote we get the impression that books of chivalry were around everywhere in Cervantes' day. Pidal says the literature was not dying of old age, yet by 1605 books of chivalry had been in decline for some decades. The romantic spirit of the genre persisted. The publication of Don Quixote co- coincided with what Nabokov calls a pathological orgy of sonnet-making throughout Europe. But as for Cervantes' wrecking chivalry, Nabokov's impression was that all this has been dreadfully exaggerated and that Cervantes did not destroy anything. And he is backed up on this by Guy Davenport, who says, Don Quixote had no effect whatsoever on the health of the romance. It simply invented a robust and parallel tradition which moved alongside ever since. Richardson would now have a fielding. It's easy to get carried away in picturing Cervantes putting chivalry to the sword, but while the form resembles a constant punching bag throughout the book, it serves more as the wooden posts this scarecrow masterpiece is hung on. For a number of reasons, the theory that the novel is dead set on the erasure of popular books of chivalry just doesn't hold up. Firstly, financial reasons. As we know, Cervantes at this point in his life couldn't afford to write solely for pleasure. It makes very little sense to launch an attack on what the nation most loves to read. Much more likely, Cervantes decided to parody a familiar but old-fashioned form that his reading public might feel warmth for, but nothing as strong as loyalty. Even if chivalric novels were all the rage, think how often a supposed send-up of a popular form ends up being an exemplary rendition of its target. How many supposedly subversive superhero movies are there, for instance? Superheroes, incidentally, being lycra-clad evidence that the tradition of chivalrous knights-errant narratives being alive and making more money than ever. Secondly, and running on from that, the novel displays far, far too much familiarity with books of chivalry for the reader to sincerely believe Cervantes wants the whole back catalogue cast out. When any genre or franchise wanes, it is the fans that criticise it the loudest. The people who couldn't care less are nowhere to be seen. Thirdly, novelist fatigue. Now, this is a bit more conjectural, but I can't believe that any decent writer can garner two novels worth of puff on ripping up a genre. It's a useful device, sturdy enough to make a framework out of, but not to keep you going at it for a thousand pages. Finally, the idea that Cervantes would be all for banning books just seems silly. It would be silly for most writers, but for historical reasons, Cervantes had even more cause than most to be sensitive to the idea of books being burnt and banned. But for more about that, you'll have to join us for part two. Taking down books of chivalry seems almost like a metatextual joke that gets a bit out of hand. We should remember reading Cervantes' prologues and epilogues that he has made himself a character in the novel too. We've seen that his previous novel was spared from the fire. 
and in the captive's tale, the narrator references some Spanish soldier with the surname Saavedra, or Saavedra, the name Cervantes took later in life. The name of the narrator's captor is Arnot Mami, the same pirate who took Cervantes hostage. In his prologue, the author claims a detached relationship with his own novel. Having invented an imaginary translator for this true history, Cervantes describes himself as a stepfather, not father, to his book. And the idea of fathering a text brings us to the picaresque. Good book. Oh, yes, sir. A satire. First reading, it purports to be a picaresque romance. But to the educated eye, it's more of a satire on the morals and manners of society. Tell me something funny from it. The picaresque was a much more recent and local development in literary history. Whilst the work of Ovid and Chaucer have elements of the picaresque, the form began properly with the 1554 novella Lazarillo de Tormes, anonymously published in, of all places, Cervantes' town of birth. Picaresque fiction was episodic and biographical, tending to begin with a character's birth and end in their death. A character called Passemonte, a criminal freed by Don Quixote, informs him in a famous passage that he is working on a book even better than the story of Lazarillo. How is the book titled? asks Don Quixote. The life of Hines de Passemonte. And is it finished? How can it be finished if my life isn't finished yet? What I've written goes from my birth to the moment they sentence me to the galleys this last time. It is fitting that Hines is a criminal. The Picaros, where the form takes its name, were rogues or scoundrels. Other characteristics of the picaresque include an attention to social realism, characters of lowly beginnings, and a satirical or grotesque sense of humour, inspired by the Milesian tales such as Apuleius's Golden Ass, which we covered on a previous podcast. The picaros' adventures will often take digressive routes through interpolated stories. We've mentioned several already. There's the captive's tale, the man who was recklessly curious, and, of course, the story of Cardenio. What was I going to say with that? Oh, yeah, so... uh... Because there's the whole thing about Cardenio. We're, yes. We're charging ahead now, but um, one of the isolated stories in um, uh, Don Quixote is the story of Cardenio, mm-hmm. the uh, lover who goes mad and runs into the hills. So many episodes. So did you did you know there's a lost Shakespeare play called Cardenio? I did not. But, and the supposition has always been it's an adaptation of that story from Quixote. Oh, it would be lovely if it was. I know, but it has never been found. It's enticed... Um, is, 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 is it one of these ones that's been found in like a playbill or in a footnote or something? That... Yeah, I'm sure a few... I really need to dig out this story because I was talking about this recently to someone. But um, it was discovered and it was huge news for like a week and then it all went quiet. I think it's time to tell people that we're transitioning into a fully conspiracy-based podcast. William Shakespeare, hear <laughs> her real story. <laughs> all caps. All caps. William Shakespeare, not dead. (laughs) Having dug up this story of the uh, finding of Cardenio, or double falsehood, I find that it is based on a 1727 revision of Shakespeare and Fletcher's play by Lewis Theobald, which with painstaking paleontology, someone has de-Theobalded in order to get an approximation of what Shakespeare and Fletcher wrote. If you want to read more about it, look up Gary Taylor. He's the man who's reconstructed it. And this won't be the first conspiracy we encounter in Don Quixote. The major one will be discussed more in part two. But for Patreon listeners, we have also recorded a one-off literary conspiracy special where Adam and I look at some conspicuous examples of literary fraud over the years. You can check it out at patreon.com slash this. But for now, back to part one of Don Quixote. According to Roberto Gonzalez Echevarra, 
Cervantes learned from the picaresque, but rejected two of its crucial elements, the deterministic quality of life deeply scarred by a painful youth and the first-person narrative. Echevarra finds it fitting that Don Quixote finds himself in the hands of a priest and a barber. One is caretaker of the soul, the other of the body. They did more than just trimming hair, barbers. In Cervantes' time, barbers, like his father, were surgeons too, responsible for bloodletting, bone-setting and so forth. The chivalric hero, whose style of romance is appreciative more than erotic, who is an idealistic wanderer, seems worlds apart from the earthy rogue of the picaresque. But as Echevarra says, the hero, like the picaro, is a fugitive from justice. Chivalric romances and picaresque novels do not clash in Don Quixote, they both live within the mad Hidalgo. And you can read the novel in either style. The picaresque adventures of a madman called Alonso, rambling through a contemporary, dilapidated and baffled Spain. Or take Quixote at his word, and see it as his chivalric struggle against the usual giants, but also the enchanters, who would convince your squire they are not giants, but windmills. In his lectures on Quixote, Vladimir Nabokov plotted out episode by episode Don Quixote's victories and defeats, favouring how they play out within the delusion over whatever the actual events are. At the end of the first book, Nabokov's score is tied, 13 victories to 13 defeats. It is a weakened Don who returns to his bed in La Mancha, staring at his friends with eyes transfixed, not understanding where he is. His first adventure is now over. Cervantes ends by half-promising a sequel and signing off with words that will come back to haunt him. Perhaps another will sing in a better style. Next time we will discuss the second part of Don Quixote, published a decade after the original, Find out how changed our characters are and see what strange new enchantments they have to overcome. Until then, happy reading. (laughs) 